Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 93. Today's guest is Andrew Sobel. Andrew Sobel is the best-selling author of nine books, which have been translated into over 22 languages. His work includes such titles as It Starts With Clients, Power Relationships, and my personal favorite, Power Questions. Andrew has worked with hundreds of the leading companies in the world, including PricewaterhouseCoopers, IBM, Ernst & Young, McKinsey, Citibank, Bank of America, just to name a few. Andrew has trained over 50,000 professionals in over 52 countries on how to create and keep clients for life. Andrew and I discuss how great relationships are based on great conversations and how great conversations are based on power questions. I was so excited to get Andrew on the show. I have been a big fan of his books over the years. Power Questions is one of my all-time favorite books. It has helped me have more meaningful conversations, both in my professional and personal life. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come, including episode number 100, which will be joined by international best-selling author Seth Godin, who's coming back on the show for a second appearance to promote his latest book. Until then, enjoy my conversation with best-selling author Andrew Sobel. And remember, life is built, not born. Andrew Sobel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Andrew, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? All right. Well, I got my start in the management consulting business uh, right after business school, although I had worked, something most people don't know about me, I between college and business school, I worked for three years at a large department store in Boston, which was called Filene's. It was part of Federated Department Stores. And I actually learned a lot about customer service and serving clients and customers uh, because I was in their management training program, but I started out as an assistant buyer in women's shoes. So here I was, this sort of wet behind the ears, recent college graduate, you know, from a pretty professional intellectual family. My father was a, a medical school professor and doctor. And uh, every day we'd go out for an hour on the sales floor and help. We had to help sell the shoes. So I, I learned a lot about women's shoes and how shoes play into the whole psyche uh, of someone and so on. So that was my first introduction to selling and and what how you make customers happy and so on. And I I I uh, I, I learned life lesson from that is that there are many products and services people buy which which represent a lot more than just the product or service. They there's a a, a psychic or psychological connection and emotional relationship with them. And there certainly, at least at the time, was a strong emotional relationship between the women who came into shop and their shoes. It was tied to lots of other things. So that was one of my, when I was about 21 years old. But uh, you know, to make a long story short, I, I spent about 14 years with a large global consulting firm. And this is my second lesson, I guess. 
that I learned the literally the first week I went to work for this firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I had just graduated from Dartmouth's Tuck School with my MBA. And I noticed something. There was a very senior partner who had a corner office. And all day long, the calls were flooding into to his office. And in those days, there was voicemail, but it wasn't used that much. Instead, people you know had assistants who took messages on pink slips. And he had this big uh, sort of almost like a metal nail, and they would put these pink message slips. And his as the day went on, they would just pile up until they were overflowing. And these were top executives from all over the country calling Scott to talk about doing some big project for them. And then I noticed that there were other partners in the firm who were basically delivering the work that Scott and a few other partners sold. And it became quickly clear to me that in I'm going to generalize, in business, there were people who sort of executed things. And there were others who were bringing in the business, who were attracting clients and customers and selling and you know, being responsible for really growing the business. And I just said to myself, yeah, I, I want to be one of those because they held the sway in the firm. They were the ones that got promoted to the leadership and so on, because just sort of delivering on the product was a little more of a commodity, it seemed. So I didn't have the whole my whole clients for life concept figured out in the first week at, at my old firm, but it was pretty clear to me that if I was going to be in a professional business or any business, I wanted to be someone who was seen as having the ability and the drive and the personality and the skills to bring in major customers and clients. That that was pretty clear to me. And then when I about fourteen years later, I left the firm partly because we had sold it to a big big uh, multinational company, I was fascinated by, I've observed this for many years, but what is the difference? What's the difference between the person who's able to build trusted relationships with their clients and customers versus the person who just can't do that because didn't have the emotional intelligence or they didn't have the relational skills or they just didn't have the big picture thinking? I, I didn't have it figured out at the time, but I knew I wanted to look into that. And that was the genesis of my first book, which was called Clients for Life. And I co-wrote it with Jag Sheff, who was a very well-known marketing professor at Emory uh, at the Goizueta Business School. And uh, you know, Jag was a very brilliant guy. And I did a lot of the legwork, a lot of the interviews. And, and together, we worked out Clients for Life. And it looked at the seven attributes of trusted advisors. So what does it take to win someone's trust and then to bring them more than just the product they're buying. So they're not just buying a new IT system for their company. They're really they're, they're buying something that's going to enable their strategic goals, that's enterprise-wide, you know, that's mm -hmm. and so on. And and so the uh I then followed that up. And so I've written a total of nine books. They've been translated into over 20 at last count a bit over 22 languages around the world. And Power Questions, which you showed, is kind of one of my absolute best-selling books. And I, I wrote that with Jer the late, great Jerry Panis, uh, who was one of the top fundraise fundraising consultants in the world, where questions are really important, right, when you're raising money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very much like a customer. You're trying to understand the donor. Mm -hmm. What are the donor's aspirations? What's important to them? How could a major gift help 
them achieve their own. That's kind of brought that that's from Clients for Life. I ended up on power questions and so on. And I continue to be fascinated with questions. And of course, interestingly, since we wrote that book, there have been other books written about the power of questions. Oh, it's amazing. It, it I, hope, started... I hope to think it's like original Coke or something. Yeah. You know, it's not going to go away. Brian Holiday, are you familiar with his work on philosophy? You wrote the obstacles. Okay, I've away. heard the name. I'm not familiar. Yeah. With it. So uh, anyway, he wrote like no one was writing philosophy books that were being sold, and then he wrote a philosophy book called The Obstacles, The Way, and The Daily Stoic. And now you go. There's dozens oh, of books yeah. on Seneca and Epictetus. Yes, exactly. So, but what I like to do is, um, I like to get into your couple of your books that just changed my thought process professionally and personally. One, I'm holding up here, The Bright Yellow Power Questions, but definitely a top 10 book that I've ever read. It's changed my sales game, changed the way I coach people, the changed the way I connected with customers. I got exponentially more impactful in what I did after I read this book. Probably read it four or five times. Crazy. I also want to get into Power Relationships, one of your follow-up books, and uh, touch on It Starts With Clients. But before we do that, I want to go back all the way from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I kind of grew up a bit all over. I'm from the New York area. I was born in Chappaqua, uh, New York. And my my dad was a well-known psychiatrist, and he decided he wanted to teach and go into academia. So we we spent some time out in Washington here. At, he was at the University of Washington Medical School. And then from there, we moved to Hanover, New Hampshire, to Dartmouth, where he chaired the Department of Psychiatry. Wow. Then my, unfortunately, my parents got divorced when I was about 12. And uh, we moved, my mother was a New Yorker. She had grown up in New York. And we moved back to, I moved with her to New York with my younger sister. So I ended, actually ended up doing my high school years in Manhattan at a rather sort of Tony prep school called Collegiate, which, you know, it was founded. 15 years before Harvard was founded, you know, Whoa. so I can kind of, uh, uh, I can boost my self-esteem, you know, by <laughs> saying I went to this time. It was actually a great school, although I was kind of miserable because my family was falling apart. But, uh, you know, I think, I, I, do, I do actually think, I always try to link a tough experience to something positive that happened, uh-huh. you know, because life is tough, you know, life yeah. is uh, M. Scott Peck, you know, starts his famous book. What is it? The road not taken, called. Uh, and he start the first sentence is life something like life is difficult, mm-hmm. right? And life is tough. Even you know, I was very fortunate. I was you know, born into a middle class family with parents who cared about my education and so on. I think that moving around and then moving to New York, which was so different for me, really helped my empathy. It mm-hmm. really helped me. Uh, and and uh, it's it's interesting. I met someone in New York who's a very successful real estate lawyer, and I'm kind of illustrating one of my principles here. And uh, this is just a few years ago, and it turns out he had also gone to uh, collegiate school in New York. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty well known school. And he said uh, he said, "Well, I'll, I'll never." And I didn't re- actually remember him because it was you know 40 years ago or whatever it was, and. Uh, he said, uh, I'll never forget what you did for me. And I, wow, what did I do? And he said, well, I moved to collegiate as a junior. So in the middle of high school, that's very hard for teenagers that's to hard. be in 11th grade, right? He said, and on the first day at collegiate, 
I was lost, you know, nobody talked to me, nobody knew me. I felt like the odd person out. I felt awful about myself. And you were a senior. And he said, seniors didn't talk to juniors. You know how it is in high school. If you're Mm -hmm. a senior, it's like everybody else is a plebe. And he said, you came up to me and asked me my name and said, hey, welcome to collegiate, you know, and uh, he said, you pointed a few things out to me. And he said, like, all of a sudden things changed. I was like, oh, this isn't such a bad place. Somebody actually cares about me. Mm-hmm. And I had completely forgotten about, I'll be honest with you, this incident. Uh, and actually, I was kind of amazed I did that. But <laughs> I'm not trying to paint myself out as some like, always a super nice guy. Because trust me, like everyone else, I've got my b- bad side. But uh, he just said that was transformative for him that the first day he arrived there, somebody a senior reached out to him and said hey welcome and what's your name and how you doing mm-hmm. and he said it totally changed that the beginning of that year for him it was tra- i mean i was astounded i think in business people want to know you care that you that you don't just care about selling to them that you care about them that you care about their company that you care about their career and how how they're doing and where they're going uh so that really struck me when he told me that story. And mm-hmm. I'm doing a little reverse engineering here, but in my study of of great rainmakers, great trusted advisors, clearly that that caring is a is a big, big piece of it. I think yeah. you know, generosity also goes along with that. Saying someone's generous is one of the biggest compliments you can pay them, right? Yeah. Oh, they're a very generous person versus ah, they're so stingy, right? Yeah. Or the English they mean. Mean means stingy <laughs> in, in, in England. They'll say, he's so mean. Yeah. Not, not not meaning cruel, but stingy. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that also my parents' divorce, as honestly horrible as it was and painful, and don't let anyone kid you, divorce, you know, I realize it's inevitable in some cases, but it's very hard on kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... But again, I think that gave me a lot of empathy for other yeah. people and it's, people who who are having a tough time in their families or, you know, who are in a single parent home or something like. So all those difficult experiences, especially from like 12 to 18 that I had, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think honestly maybe made it possible for me to write the books I did. If you even look at the writing of other successful authors like yourself, like uh, Brene Brown, Seth Godin. They write a lot about empathy and when you can see the world through someone else's eyes, one of them called it a superpower because you can connect with people at a level that's just so powerful when you see it through their eyes and you can, then people know you connect with them and you, and like you said, you just don't care about the end result, which is important. You need results to keep the food on the table and the lights on the house and the stock price going. But like you care about them, you care about their career, you care about their families, right? That's so important. It's And by the way, it's decreased. So I think way down, I think in the last five or 10 years, empathy has decreased. We know that trust has decreased. Yeah, you know, I don't. I haven't seen empathy studies, but the trust has steadily gone down. Trust mm-hmm. in everything. Trust in business. Trust in government. Trust in your neighbor. Trust in the other political party. Whatever it is. Edelman, the big PR firm, does these trust tracking studies. They've done them for decades. Down, down, down. That's part of the empathy equation, and that links to power questions. 
I realized early on that there was something about these great rainmakers I had studied, these great trusted advisors. What I did is I decided to interview their clients. So I interviewed hundreds of CEOs and top executives. And one of the things they would always say, ah, so-and-so is my trusted advisor. They ask great questions. They ask Mm -hmm. great questions. But here's the thing, Joe. There were a lot of books that would say, you got to ask good questions, but I didn't find those questions. In other words, I hadn't found a book, at least this is going back 10, 15 years, that really said, and here are great questions. There were books like for parties where you go to a party and you ask people questions, which is a little different than, you know, asking a top executive really profound questions. And so, the first, by the way, you probably don't know this. What I did, this is 15 years ago, I developed a little pamphlet. It was like one of those uh, three-folded things, like this high and that wide, like a little brochure. And it was 75 great questions to ask in any client meeting. Wow. And it's and it was blue. Uh-huh. And, and so here's here's why it's also good to keep your nose to the marketplace. Like what what are people saying? Be out in the, I call it being at the crossroads of the market. Okay. You got to be out there, right? As a sales manager, you I'm sure you're talking to customers a lot. Yep. Well, um, clients started, I started handing it out to clients, and then I'd get a, a call. Or an email saying, "Hey, could, could we have ten more? I want to give them to my t- this little pamphlet to my team." And then I had several clients who said, "Well, I I could I'd like to order some more of them." Now I wasn't selling them, and and they said, "We want five hundred of them." Someone else wanted a thousand of them. Wow! To give to all of their people, and I was like, "Wait!" <laughs> I said, "Look, I can't give you five hundred of these. They cost like three dollars each." Fine, we'll you know just send us a bill for the printing. They you want know, your all book. All of a sudden, I was in there, and and then I thought. Holy cow, you know, I got to write a book on this because it was clear it had touched a nerve. And that's when I I knew Jerry Panis, who, as I said, Jerry would help nonprofits raise money and he would go around interviewing. Jerry knew more billionaires than anyone I've ever known in my life. You know, he would go talk to very wealthy people on boards of directors and talk to them about, you know, giving $10 million or something to a museum or to a school. So the two of us sat down and said, okay, we're going to, you know, write this book called Power Questions. And I, I want to give Jerry some credit here. My original title was Powerful Questions was going to be the, and I sold it to the publisher as Powerful Questions. And Jerry was a genius with these things. And he said to me, he called me up one day in my apartment in New York and said, you know, he talked very slowly. He'd say, Andrew, I, I'm thinking about the title. I think Questions would be better than powerful questions. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, you know, Jerry was like 20 years, I don't know, 25 years older than me. And I, I said, holy cow, he's right. You know, I mean, I can be a stubborn person, but I'm, I do listen for good ideas. That's, you know, again, that's part of that empathy part. Yeah. I do listen for good ideas. So I'm always like collecting good ideas for my work. And I said, holy cow, that's a much better title. And of course, it was a much better title than Powerful Questions. But but it's really the genesis was uh, to then write the book. I interviewed the CEO of this big company in Chicago on behalf of a client of mine who did business with them. And, and she said to me, you know, I can always tell how experienced someone is by who walks into my office by the quality of their questions. She didn't say it's because there's 
I can always tell how clever they are, but how smart they are by the brilliance of their insight. Although that could be part of it. It was about, it's the quality of their question. That's how I can immediately evaluate someone. And if someone comes in and starts asking cliched questions or informational questions. Yeah. So what's your market share in Dead. Illinois? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you might have to ask a couple of those at the beginning of a conversation. Just And I usually say, literally, I have to ask you one or two informational questions just to make sure that I understand you. And so you ask a couple of those, but then you have to quickly shift to things like asking them about their aspirations and their goals and what's getting in the way and, yeah. and so on. So anyway, that was the genesis of Power Questions, and it and it did it did really strike a nerve. It was bestseller list, and and it here's the thing: it's I tell my clients it's hard work. People prepare for meetings mostly by preparing what they're going to say. Yes, it's true. And, and it's, it's always about what's our message and what yeah. are we going to say and how are we going to frame this. Everybody's talking about. And then if you work with some of the big companies I do, they've got the PowerPoint. It's always all about the power. You know, I'm sure you fight yeah. this in your own organization. Oh, oh yes. yeah, we got to make a PowerPoint presentation. What? But like, that's boring. Clients tell me it's boring. Putting things in more of a story format and a question format are much more interesting. But anyway, we're always. So I tell my clients, you have to shift your meeting prep. So you're spending less time preparing those PowerPoint slides. You're spending less time fine-tuning your speech, which mm -hmm. no one wants to hear, by the your way. Your message. No one wants to hear your message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and But spending a little more time, not all your time, but some dedicated time to, what are three questions we're going to ask this person? What are three three questions? And the reason I say three is, you don't, first of all, you don't really need more than three good questions because one good question could create a 20-minute conversation, mm -hmm. right? Or a 30-minute conversation. But if the first one or two questions don't pan out, you've always got that third. So I say, you know, what are three good questions? And they're, they should be thought-provoking. They should be getting at uh, the person's agenda. What are they trying to – they should be questions that are getting at the root causes of the issue. They should be questions that sometimes are getting at the why. You know, they're, uh, there's all kinds of powerful questions. I also like self-assessment questions, as you know. Joe, which is which I think is very good in, in a sales situation. Mm -hmm. Self-assessment, instead of saying, based on the research we've done, your your customer services is really ranked right in the middle of your competition. It's like telling. I'd rather say, hey Joe, I'm curious. Right now, on a scale of one to five, how would you rate your customer service? Where five is world class, better than the competition, one is subpar and pretty bad. You know, like where would you put yourself and why? People tend to be pretty honest on these self-assessments mm -hmm. and they'll say, you know, Andrew, honestly, we're probably a three, but this is why we're talking to you. We want to be a four or a five. Yeah. I get, I'll get, i get things like that. So you really push people to, this starts with investing before you meet people. It's at that pre-call prep, they call it sometimes. Yeah. Just, uh, just unpacking a couple of things you said. You said trust. You're so big into building trust, right? And how do you build trust? I think... I think one of the ways, the main ways to listen, like when you ask a question, you listen to the person. Listening to a person is such a way to build connection where there's some conversations where if you ask a question and the other person spoke 90% of the time, they may leave that saying, wow, Andrew, Joe, they're great conversationalists, even though they did all the talking, right? 
Because if, if someone does all the speaking, you just listen, listen, listen. When someone feels heard, you're connected to that person you think that's listening to you. Because I think of the people I love to hang out with, they're the ones that ask, like, that, that, that ask you, how's this going? How's that going? And actually care about what you say, right? Another one you mentioned earlier about the EQ, the emotional intelligence versus the IQ, because there's so many smart people out there, right? But there's so many smart people that just can't connect with people and, and where they're just so in their head. But that EQ where you go in there and that emotional intelligence where like, or I, when I first got into sales, I was in radio sales in Philly, selling live radio air spots. And one of my first sales meetings, the manager came in. And there's a few of us that were new in the room in this big sales meeting. He goes, everyone, welcome to the world of sales where C students make A student money. <laughs> and to do that, like you, you have to have that, you have that emotional intelligence. You might not have that IQ where you get a, you know, a 1550 on your SATs, but if you have the ability to ask questions, listen, build trust, gain buy-in and work with yeah. people. You're going to you're going to take you're going to go far, don't you think? It's it's huge. And then when you combine them, of course, you know, good skills, good capabilities, hard work, and drive. And then you add that that those emotional intelligence skills. And just to clarify, because that term's thrown around a lot, emotional intelligence is start. It starts with self awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so self awareness is critical to empathy and listening. By the way, if you're not self aware, you aren't aware of of the things that actually prevent you from listening. And by the way, biases are one of the things that prevent us from listening. So maybe things have improved now, but it used to be that car dealership, that women more than men made the decision about what car to buy. And women were treated terribly in car dealerships. And I I know this is true because they've done surveys talking to my sister, my wife, my daughters. Again, things may be better now, but generally they weren't treated very well in dealerships, yet they were more often than than men making the decision to buy. And also studies show, for example, I've read that uh, African-Americans receive less good medical care from doctors than if you're like Caucasian. And, you know, what, the study didn't determine exactly why, but both my brothers are doctors. I don't know if I told you this, both my older brothers are doctors. And when I talked to them about this, they said it's about listening to the patient. And I think a doctor can be more and more dismissive of someone because they're of color or maybe they're a woman. They don't listen as well. They don't listen to their symptoms. But women were often dismissed. Doctors didn't listen to them. You mm-hmm. know, So self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, Empathy, social radar, being able to tune into people, those are all components of of this emotional intelligence. And they can be learned. Here's the thing. This can be learned. There's Mm -hmm. no question about it. So this is badly needed, I think, in our culture, because unfortunately, the trust, the empathy, the willingness to listen. I don't know if you've ever posted on social media. I don't do this, but I've tried it once or twice post an online forum that relates to an article in the New York Times or the Washington Post. It's just people screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody <laughs> wants nobody wants to listen. No, not at all. They not they all. simply want to insult the other person. This is what I've noticed. And so it's kind of discouraging. But you know what? We 
One of the things I've learned through the pandemic and the last set of election cycles is that I have to focus on making a difference myself, mm. the people around me, with the clients I serve, with my family. And it, and I, I went through a period of real frustration because we had all this national politics and there's all this stuff happening up here. And I think Stephen Covey called it circle of concern versus circle of influence. Mm -hmm. And my circle of concern became very intense around the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Mm -hmm. Our country's falling apart with polarization, whatever. There's a pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's like was my circle of concern, but it, it seemed to absorb all my time and energy. And I kind of came back to realizing I can make a difference with the people around me, the people yep. I meet with the kid who's an 11th grader and I'm a senior and I welcome him, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I think we can all make a huge difference with our clients and our customers, with our colleagues at work. And we got to set aside the being in angst or whatever, or anxious eight hours a day about all this stuff we can't control. We can make a, a big difference. You know, yeah. I know you make a difference to your customers. And uh, so I appreciate that. Before we move on from power questions, out of the 337 you have in here, there's two or three that I think are so basic, but are so powerful and are so overlooked. And just wanted to get your take on just why do you think they're so powerful? One of the power questions you have is uh, you ask somebody, what do you think? And that is yeah. so not asked yeah. <laughs> so yeah. much. That is such a simple question. What do you yeah. think? What do you, like, what do you think? And yeah. you, they could talk for an hour. Like after they might go for, like you said, 20 minutes telling you what they think. And it's, it's not asked. I know I don't do it enough. I'm discussing stuff with my yeah. team. What do you think? It's, yeah. How powerful it's, is that it, question? It, yeah. So it's interesting that actually I don't, you know, Jerry and I wrote, we sort of wrote different chapters, took turns writing chapters. That uh -huh. actually was a question of Jerry's. And uh, and I don't normally reveal that. I've had lots of people write to me, oh, who wrote which chapter and that kind of uh -huh. thing. And no, that's a state. It's like, you know, with the Beatles, yeah. you know, which song did Lennon write? <laughs> and which song did Mac I'm just kidding. But I'm a real Beatles fan. But listen, I think it's powerful because it's, A, it's uncommon. Yep. We, we everyone just I just want to tell you what I think, Joe. You know, yeah. I just I don't care. Here's what I think, and what you think is garbage anyway. So why should I listen to it? Is that I mean that's kind of what goes on today. It's uncommon. Secondly, it's actually we all want it. Like we want to be thought of or seen as useful and valuable, and it's a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it is. It's respecting the other person. Yep. And uh, I find with my clients, you know, I'm the person who's supposed to have the answers. I'm the consultant. I'm the coach. I'm supposed to, I wrote all these books, you know, and, and sometimes people just say, well, Andrew, so what do you think? What should we do? But my clients are pretty smart and they don't just sit around saying, Andrew, tell us what to do. You know, they're like, they, and it's a conversation. And when I turn to them and say, so we've looked at many different parts of this issue here and I've made a few suggestions, but what do you think? Because in the end, it's like your business. Yeah, so powerful. And just, so, powerful. so so therefore, I think it's an affirmation. It's respect. Yeah, uh, and it's saying I value you and your and what you think. I value you. You know, it almost gets down to the caring that we talked about. It's, it's in a sense, it's an expression of care. I actually care what you think.
Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's why that is pretty powerful. And we all, including me, should use it uh, more. And we should use it with our friends and family. This, you I know, mean, it's uh, like with your uh, partner or spouse or your, a child, a teenager. We're so, we lecture kids all the time as opposed to saying, so yeah, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think? What, what, what have you, you know, I realize now when a teenager messes up, instead of just saying, you messed up, here's what you need to do to fix it. Saying to them, look, it, it sounds like you're pretty disappointed in what just happened. What are you thinking? About? I'm curious. What are you thinking about doing about it? Like, what are you, what do you, what do you think your options are right here? Yeah. Asking a, a teenager that is powerful. Yeah. And they might say, well, I don't know. But giving unsolicited advice all the time is creates resistance. Not it does. Yes. Oh, so right? Especially teenagers. Do you have another question that you pulled out of the book? I do. Oh, I got a couple. Here's another one. After a big mess up or after the end of a long process, you oh, ask yeah. someone, what did you learn? That opens up doors like at the end of a long customer conversation or your kid after he failed the test. All right. So what you learn? What you learn from all this? You failed the test. What did you learn? Or you, or maybe you struck out four times in a baseball game. What you learn? And yeah. it's what do you? Th- I mean, that's and it could be a success too. It could be okay. Hey, yeah. You you won the championship this year. What did you learn from that experience? I love that question because it makes people really reflect about either their shortcomings or their successes, and it makes it also. It makes them think about something they probably don't normally think about. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't go around life thinking, well, what did I, I, maybe as mature adults later on in life we do, but in general, people aren't spending a lot of time doing what they call in the military. It's called an after action review. My son is a vet. He was in special, special ops. And he, they used to, he told me that, you know, after every mission, after every they would do they they would do an after action review they would talk about what you know what went well what didn't go well what they would do differently on the next mission like that's a very standard protocol in the military and uh i think by the way when i started my career my it was with a smaller firm and there was a mentorship process and i got i had experiences where i'd go to a client meeting and afterwards the the more senior person would turn to me and say, so let's talk about that meeting. Like, let's talk about what what we did well and maybe what we didn't do so well and what we might do differently in the next client. Like I actually had people who spent time with me on that. And that is is more rare today because we're in this crazy 24-hour cycle of email and too much responsibility, few not enough hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And we don't take the time to sit down and say, let's take a deep breath and look and do our after action review, you know, yeah. which is what did you learn? You know, what did we Refle- learn from this? Reflection. There's a lot of action, but not enough reflection to benefit the next round of action. Here's another one. There's a great Henry Kissinger story in the book. About oh, yeah. This. The question is, is this the best you can do? Yeah. That's a, so I love that story. It's, it's, um, yeah, Kissinger used it, Steve Jobs used it in the develop early development of the Mac computer Apple computers. You know, he'd tell his engineers, so okay, is this the best you can do? Takes two minutes to boot up this computer. Is that the best we can do? Go back to the drawing board. You know? And uh I think it's that's a question obviously you use sparingly because it can feel harsh to people. I think you can lighten it up and it's 
is something you can use in at work. And if you have a team that works for you, let's say they've put together a presentation, you can say, okay, I like it. But, you know, my nagging thought is, is this the best we can do? Is there any way we can improve this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good, it can be a jolt to the system asking that question that we're, when people seem really satisfied with the work they've done. And of course, in the Kissinger story, he keeps sending his secretary, assistant secretary of state for Middle East affairs, he keeps sending him back, rewriting the same paper time and time again. And he keeps writing on it. Is this really the best you can do? And then at the end, he says to Kissinger, yes, it is the best I can do. And because he, he had literally rewritten it nine times. And Kissinger says, okay, I'll read it now. <laughs> you know, that was the story. Yeah. And it's a true story. The no, guy, I'll read it. <laughs> the guy who was his, his whatever deputy secretary of state said it, it really happened. And he was, he literally kept writing it. He said, okay, I'll read it now. You know, now that now that's a bit of a nasty thing to do. I wouldn't recommend that. And if you're the you know, secretary of state, I suppose you can get away with it. But, <laughs> uh, that's a great story. How about this one? And I've used this multiple times on a mess up. Do you mind if we start over? Yeah, do you mind if we start? That's a really, again, it's kind of like, is this the best you, we can do? It's a, it's a question you have to use judiciously, but I have found it helpful both in business and in my personal life. I'll start with the personal life first. Um, you know, if you ever get in an argument with someone, friend, member of your family, your partner or spouse or parent or whatever. And you know how when you start arguing about the way you're arguing, you're lost. (laughs) Like you're no longer actually arguing about anything substantive. You're arguing about the way that the other person is arguing and criticizing that you're lost. I, I found that my wife and I, we've been married a long time, but we don't argue a lot, but sure, like any couple, we can have disagreements. And if it gets too heated, we very rarely, but we do, you know, we'll use it, but we do, and we'll say, okay, can we start over? Mm-hmm. And it just diffuses everything. And sometimes you need to take a break for a few minutes, you yeah. know, but say, let's literally start, can we, can we start over? Let's I love just, the diffuse, it just diffuses yeah, it everything. Diffuses everything. And I had a client who, who used that question and they actually were able to save a multi-million dollar contract. And what happened, this was a company that had three-year contracts with their clients. And they, you know, for for a number of reasons, the client was unhappy. And my client believes most of the reasons were the fault of their client. They just hadn't done the right things to to use the service properly and so on. But anyways, they went to try to rescue it because they were going to give it to a competitor. And, uh, they met with them and they said, here's what we're going to do to make the relationship better and so on. But at the end of the day, they said, listen, you know, your presentation was good, but we're going to, I'm sorry, there's too much water under the bridge here and we're going to go with your competition. That night in the hotel room, my client wrote a long email to the company and kind of reiterating some of the ways they planned to really shore up the relationship. And at the end of it, he said, literally, can we start over? And the next morning he got an email back and the company said, yeah, yes, I, we've thought about it and let's see if we can make it work. That's and it was great. a multi-million dollar contract. So that, Powerful. Was, that was proof that I guess it, that question in some circumstances can work. 
But but also if you're in a another situation is if you're in a meeting professionally and things just go off the rails, people are arguing or or people are criticizing your presentation. That kind of, you know, you know what? I, I feel like this discussion didn't get off on the right foot. My fault, my bad, as people like to say today. Can we start over? Now it's hard to do that if you're two hours into the meeting, but if you're like 20 minutes into the meeting, you can say, I'd like to start over, frankly, because you've raised some things that that make me think I didn't really begin this meeting properly. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I've had people tell me that does work. That's powerful. That's anyway. why it's a power question. Here's one to start and here's one like to end it. Okay. Here's one that I've used so much when I deal with like high, say high profile, but let's just say very influential customers that I'll go in to speak with. I'll just get in and say, how did you get started in? Like, how did you yeah. get started? How'd in- you get your start? Yeah. How'd you get yeah. started in this business? How'd you get your start? Yeah. How'd People you- love that question because it's everybody- crazy good. Yeah. It's, it's very simple. Everybody loves to tell their own story. Yeah. And everybody's got a story. Yeah. And so to say, uh, by the way, now, of course, I, I want to warn your listeners, timing is everything. So- you you're not probably you're probably not going to just walk in and the very first question how'd you get your start you're going to warm the meeting up you're going to sure. build some rapport you're going to connect around some commonalities maybe so you know you want to ask these questions at the right time mm-hmm. but how'd you get to it's it's great because it's an invitation to tell their story and i think like you i'm genuinely interested in people i'm interested in their stories mm-hmm. and so it, it has to be authentic but it's a great invitation to tell their story. Yeah. And here's a, here's one too at the very end to gain commitment. Because, you know, at that point when you're in sales, your job is to get results and hopefully pull the sale forward. I love this one at the very end. Is it a yes or is it a no? And you just leave it right there. at the And at, you don't, you, if you said use judiciously, but I've used it like, is it yes? Are we doing this or not doing this? Or is, is this a yes or no? Yes, because sometimes people are are kind of, keeping their options open at the last minute and they don't really want to commit and they're afraid of committing. And so, and so you're right. I think there are situations where you have to say, you know, I, I sort of maybe a more diplomatic than Jerry was. I, I might say something like, um, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It, it seems like it's something that you really want to do. I'm not sure though, where you stand. You know, is this, are, are we doing this or not? You know, are do you, is this something you want to proceed with or not? I, I think there is a time when it's helpful to say, ask that. And then they can, if they have doubts, you know, they'll say, well, I really want to do it, but okay, what's the but? Mm-hmm. You know, I think in sales, you call this a trial close. Yeah, you know, sure. Yeah. A, right. It's the idea that you, you're trying to find out where are we in the process, Right. Where are we in this process? In a sense, and so there's questions you ask. It's you know a trial close, like, and in this case, they'll come back and say yes or yes, but okay, let's talk about your concerns. Yeah. So, and and anyway, I hope hope this has been helpful to dig into. So much so. Just a couple quick questions for you, just to wrap this up. Sure. Um, I'll throw one of your questions at you, Uh, Andrew. As you look out to the year ahead. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? So I've got I, I've got a couple of projects. I've 
developed my online learning tremendously over the last decade. I actually, way before the pandemic, 10, 10, 12 years ago, I started developing online learning based on my books. And so I have some new programs I've developed and there's been great, great uptake and demand from clients because they, instead of having to fly 500 people from around the world to a meeting that cost literally millions of dollars, they can really scale basically building clients for life. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a project I'm very excited about. And there's some new modules I'm going to be developing this spring and summer. Uh, and that's, uh, that, so that's, that's, I would say it work-wise, at least that's something I'm quite excited about. And, uh, and from a, a, a personal, more personal perspective, I think, you know, I, I love spending time with my family. We've got three kids and two grandchildren and so in-laws and, and so on. And I come from a big family. So I'm looking forward to that. And I think, yeah, those would be the, the two things on the work side. And the I, there's some writing I want to do, but I get so busy doing all the other stuff that yeah. it's hard to make time for it. But I recently read Stephen King's book on writing, which, yeah. is, which is really right. brilliant. I I was skeptical, but you know, he's he actually is a fantastic writer and his his book on writing is hysterically funny and so i i read that recently and it's kind of and he basically says hey if you want to be a writer you got to write and so yeah. stop, <laughs> Imagine that. stop all the dreaming and everything yeah. so i that, gotta get it, back to some writing that and bird by bird uh yes bird that? by bird i haven't read bird by bird they're, the, that, they're uh, historical funny what? they're yeah. so good yeah and lamont doesn't say and lamont and lamont that one is my next uh, yeah i watched a, mo- a couple modules on the client advisor masterclass series you have online at your website that is gold that is so good yeah the client um, advisor masterclass series that that that's kind of my crown jewel now i put everything i've learned in the last you know 35 years into from all my research into those there's 12 12 master classes and that's there's some very big companies using it around the world not just their salespeople, but their delivery people because Delivery is sales. Yeah. That, yeah. that is an MBA in 12 modules. How about this? We'll wrap this up here. So, Andrew, we spoke about a lot. I'd love to have you back on some other time. We got, we didn't touch on power relationships. It starts with clients. We'll get that another time. But last question. If everyone listening could take just one lesson away from everything that we discussed, what would that lesson be? So... Huh. We talked about emotional intelligence. So you've got to marry great competence, technical competence at what you do with, with building a trusted relationship with the person. And if if you just have good technical competence, it can be a commodity. You know, there are lots of experts out there. If you've only got the relational skills, you can be kind of an empty suit mm-hmm. because, right, it's all talk. All sizzle, no steak, all hat, no cowboy. Yeah, it's like you're kind of an empty suit. When you cultivate, when you invest to really build your expertise and skills, but at the same time, invest to build your listening skills, your questioning skills, your empathy, the caring, the generosity, all those softer things. And you put those together. That's what great rainmakers are built out of. It's those two things brought together. If you separate them and you're just one or the other, you're very limited in where you can go. And this is true of leadership as well. 
basically leaders have to not just have all the technical skills but and experiences, but they've got to have that ability to build trust, to listen, to ask great questions. And that's what makes the great leader. So that to me, that's kind of the the foundation of of all of this. And then just one other tip. If you work in business, you you want to be seen as an investment, not a cost. In other words, when you're selling, when you're if you're whatever you're selling, whether it's a product, whether it's medicine, whether you're selling consulting services or you're selling jet engines, you have to be seen by your customer as an investment in their growth and profitability and well-being. You have to be seen as an investment, not an expense. If you're an expense to people, they can cut you at any time. If they see you as an investment in their growth, in their profitability, in their innovation, in their well-being and attainment of their most important goals, they can't get enough of you. So that's what a lot of my work is about, how to move you from being an expense to being an investment that that the client or the customer can't get enough of. Wow. Be an investment, not a cost. That is powerful. And that's the first time I think I've ever heard that phrase that particular way. I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap up. Uh, Andrew Sobel, it's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Joe. Great to see you in person here. Take care and stay in touch. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.